every Arizona homeowner's best friend, and it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house, your weekend wake-up tradition. Let's take one more walk outside on this New Year's Eve morning, the very last day of the year 2022. It's the Outdoor Living Hour at Rosie on the House, and we hope that your holiday is going well so far. Now, it is New Year's Eve, and usually it's a time for gathering with friends, planning parties, planning to stay up at midnight to ring in the new year. And what they all have in common is food and drink. And every first Saturday of the month, the Arizona Farm Bureau stops by Rosie on the House to feature food and drink produced right here in our own backyard. And that includes a nice bottle of Arizona-grown wine. And to celebrate that, we're talking today Arizona wine. Yes, yes. It's actually, it's had some resurgence, I want to say, in maybe the past 20 to 30 years. But even back... Before Arizona was even Arizona, they've been we've been heard to are known to have grown some wine grapes. But today in studio, I have Emil Mullen. He's owner of Cove Mesa, and uh, we have all sorts of stories that he's going to tell us and why he came to grow wine grapes and create some really great wine. So, Emil, um, what's your story? Well, just uh, let's go back just for a minute to the beginnings of wine in Arizona. Uh, Arizona was really the first state in the country that had wine grapes planted uh, way before we were a state, but a long time ago. And then the the Catholic Church, as the uh, uh, missions moved toward California, they actually came from here to California to plant grapes. So we, we had it a long time ago. We had we had to have real wine when we took communion. Exactly. So, thanks to the Catholic <laughs> Church. Yeah, there really truly is more than a different phase of history for the wine industry. But the resurgence recently has been quite amazing. And Abel, you got inspired, especially when you go, were going through Yavapai College's, I'm just going to call it the wine school, but... The Southwest Wine Center. Yes. And, and, uh, yes. You were a graduate of it. Did you know going through that program fairly recently, you've had your business now, what, five years? Well, the, the we've had uh, the beginnings of the business that uh, started with a vineyard uh, for a number of years. But we uh, we actually officially started the winery on June 1st of 2020. Okay. In the middle of of the pandemic. Wow. So when we moved to uh, Cornville in the Verde Valley, we moved from Tucson where we had lived for 16 years. And uh, the property that we found, uh, as soon as I saw it, I thought, boy, this would make a spectacular vineyard. Um, My wife and I, uh, Cindy and I, had been involved in wine for a long time, had been investors in a winery in Oregon for 20 years. Um, And we were great lovers of wine, and I was really into the vineyard part of it, into the farming part. Uh, I never really had thought I wanted to have a winery until I took the program from Yavapai College. And I have to say, Michael Pierce, who runs that that program, is so inspiring and such a, a tremendous teacher that I got amped up to actually have a winery. And it kind of shocked me at my old age to uh, to do that. But uh, we decided uh, in the middle of the pandemic, when everybody was locked down, we got so angry at, at being shut off from life that we just felt like we had to do something to break out. And we had this crazy idea that 
maybe now's the time to start our winery. And, Emil, I've actually known you uh, pre the launch of this because uh, you're a member of the Farm Bureau and you're involved with the Yavapai County Farm Bureau as one of their leaders. But uh, that's what's been so fun to kind of see this evolution of your own experiences with wine and then what Arizona as a state does in general. We have award-winning wines here in the state of Arizona, and a lot of it, uh, most of your expert wine growers will tell you it's just because of some of the amazing climates and what we can do with our wine grapes. But what's your mix of grapes that you grow? Well, first of all, none of our grapes are ready for market yet. We haven't harvested yet, but we have 11,400 vines in Cornville on two different sites that are pure limestone, so very difficult to grow. Um, At our house uh, uh, on Cove Mesa, which was the first vineyard we planted, we have uh, eight varietals, three whites and and five reds. And the three whites are Greco de Tufo, uh, Petite Mansang, and Assyrtico. And Greco is from uh, the Amalfi Coast area of uh, Italy in Campania. Uh, Petite Mansang is from uh, southern France. And uh, uh, the Assyrtico is from the island of Sardinia. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the... uh, the Greek island of, uh, <laughs> I've just got a mental blank. The uh, the one everybody goes We don't to. know writing. Yeah. We don't know the writing. Anyway, it's, it, it's, 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 a, it's a Greek grape. It's and, all Greek uh, to us. Right. Um, and uh, the reds are uh, Teraldigo from uh, northeastern Italy, uh, Graciano, which is from the Rioja region of Spain, uh, Barbera from uh, the Piedmont area in northwestern Italy, um, and... Uh, Barbera, also, uh, Barbera and uh, Morved, uh, which is a grape that uh, Americans mostly know of from their own region of France, although it's actually a Spanish grape. And, and then Ayanico, which is the one we have the most of. And so f- to the point of we can grow anything in Arizona, you are proof that we can grow some unique vi- uh, vines here in Arizona with our wine grapes. And it's actually what made me want to do it here. Um, if we were in California, where, where the, the regions are so identified with specific grapes that people really don't grow anything else there, we would have never done this. Seriously, that's so interesting. So, and there's another backstory with you. Uh, your career has not always been in the wine business. You're pretty much a businessman. So, Emil, what inspired all this? Well, as I said, uh, I've been into wine for a long time. I mean, really serious about wine since I was in my uh, probably mid to late 20s, which was a long time ago. And uh, anything I'm interested in, I've become a serious student of. And uh, we have, uh, my wife and I have been to Europe, uh, I don't know, 30 times. Um, We've always visited uh, producers all over uh, France, Italy, and Spain, been to a lot of vineyards. uh, I've just done a lot of research, and of course, the research uh, into wine includes drinking a lot of really high-quality wine. So, and you've brought a couple of your bottles, and then we also have the Centennial Red, which we uh, partnered with the Southwest Wine Center, Michael Pierce, to create the Centennial Reds in celebration of Arizona Farm Bureau's 100 years. But tell us about the two wines that you brought us today. Well, and- be- because it's morning. Uh, I didn't bring any reds. Um, <laughs> we uh, we have a Peak Pool Blanc and a Malvasia Bianca opened uh, to taste. We haven't started yet. I don't think anybody's tasted. I had one little sample. Oh, I'm being very judicious because I still have to ask 
legitimate questions. So the the Pique Poule Blanc uh, is a really interesting grape that is perfect for Arizona. One of the problems we have here is that uh, our fruit ripens when it's still really hot. I mean, it can be 110 degrees at uh, harvest time. And as a result, we have a hard time maintaining acidity in the in the grapes. So everything I planted on my, in my vineyard, um, uh, and and this peak pool is a great example. Um, are, they're grapes that maintain their acidity. Explain this for our wine lovers. What are we tasting? Um, what are we tasting in this wine? Yes. Well. It's, it's a, very good, by the way. I can at least say that. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, Peak Pool is uh, because it's a high acid wine. It is very elegant, uh, very refreshing. Um, it has um, some really nice uh, uh, light green appley characteristics. Uh, if, if you're a person that that likes New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, for example, uh, which is a very high acid uh, wine with the green uh, noted for green apple and and lemony flavors. Uh, the Peak Pool is not far off from that. I think it's more elegant. I, I think in some ways it's more interesting. Um, it's very refreshing. But it would be in that category for people who uh, aren't familiar with the, with the grape. It's very appropriate to try on a Saturday morning. Perfect, yes. <laughs> very nice breakfast wine. And just because Governor Ducey recently proclaimed November Arizona Leafy Greens Month. I want to give props to our leafy greens grow, growers right now in Yuma, Maricopa County, uh, Pinal County. A lot of our produce farmers are growing a lot of these mixed leafy greens. And, of course, we think salads and all your vegetables. But it's a good pairing with wine. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to give them props. But for our listeners, just remember that no, November is Arizona Leafy Greens Month. And well, and this peak pool would would especially be good. Yeah, I was going to say, that. is that yes. a good pairing? It is with and all it's, of our and, vegetables, and it's because of the uh, high acidity uh, in in the wine. So yes, it'd be great. So, so is a grape a fruit or a vegetable? Oh, it's definitely a fruit. So I'm just adding a fruit juice to my salad. Exactly. <laughs> it is exactly a very, a very healthy combination here right yes so that all, all the nutrients that we need from the vegetables and fruits and salads all, all tied together in one so a lot of um, wine history in arizona is very interesting intriguing and in our history book that we just produced for our centennial celebration for arizona farm bureau we have a section on some of the historical experiences and what went on with the wine industry and here in Arizona. And we have so much potential. And as we've talked in the past with some of our other wine growers on the show, and Rosie, I even recall you kind of making reference to this, how the wine industry has really helped some of these rural communities economically. And uh, so you can go down there and you can travel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe 80% of the grape farming is done in Cochise County in southern Arizona. Yeah, between uh, uh, Sonoida and, uh, and Wilcox, Wilcox being the far larger producer, uh, about 80% of the fruit in Arizona is grown in southeastern Arizona. But a lot of times they like to reference that a lot of our winemakers using those Wilcox grapes are a lot of those winemaker expertise, so to speak, is coming from more northern Arizona. Well, uh, uh, I mean, they're from all over. But. Yeah, oddly enough, about eighty percent of the wine in Arizona is made in in the Verde Valley. Okay. So there's a lot of uh, driving. I, I made ten trips in our uh, big Freightliner truck this fall or this harvest season to bring fruit up from uh, 
Wilcox uh, to uh, our winery in Cottonwood. Talk a little bit more about what you learned going through the school at Yavapai College focused on winemaking and grapes. And, and, all and we'll give you three minutes to think about it because we can do a lot of things here at Rosie on the House, but we can't stop the clock. So the biggest takeaway so far, Father Kino was a wino. <laughs> Originally brought it to the Southwest. Yep. And uh, before it became prominent in California, wine was originally grown, grapes were grown for communion in Arizona. Yeah. I knew that the San Pedro River had some of the oldest known farm sites that yes. have been recovered in the entire country. That no wine was part of it. And I'm convinced that they probably grew the wine grapes for more reasons than communion because back then they didn't have air conditioning. You had to do something to survive, right? Right. <laughs> like drink wine. So, Emil, I was about to ask you about the Southwest Wine Center. Uh, what struck you the most? What were your key takeaways But besides learning to become a great vineyard owner and winemaker and all that fun stuff? Well, the Southwest Wine Center is a very unique uh, wine and, and uh a vineyard program because it is everything from beginning to end. It is, uh, uh, un unlike UC Davis, which is the most famous in the U.S., uh, the Southwest Wine Center has a fully functioning winery. And so students actually learn everything from, from pl planting the grapes to making the wine to marketing uh, you know, bottling and marketing and doing everything in the in the wine program. And they actually and that's have, really unique. Yes, they actually have a vineyard right on the school. They have a, a large vineyard and very high quality fruit. Luckily for us, this year we were able to get uh, Peak Pool and uh, Ionico from that vineyard, and we're really excited about it. So, because of that, Arizona Farm Bureau partnered with the Southwest Wine Center, and the students crafted for us a Centennial Red. The Centennial Red is a blend of six different red uh, grapes, and the kind of punch or, that I get from it, I feel a little bit silly to say notes because I don't feel like I'm a wine expert, but it's got that black cherry taste to it. It's a very good red blend. What's your take on it? Amy? Well, that's exactly right. Um, uh, kind of a dried uh, black cherry flavor, uh, very well-balanced wine, very well-made. And, and for those uh, listeners out there who think student wine is maybe something uh, that you, you want to try to support the school, but maybe it's not your favorite thing, I have to tell you the wine that the Southwest Wine Center makes has won many national awards. Uh, I mean, it's uh, against, you know, all the commercial wineries. Uh, it is very high quality. They, they've had a lot of wonderful wine, and the Centennial Red is a great example. And so based on that point, uh, and it's made by the students, but it's a high-quality wine, how can I get it? Well, the Southwest Wine Center, as I said, is a uh, – uh, they sell uh, retail. They have a, a beautiful tasting room um, on, on site at uh, Yavapai College. Uh, it's actually in Clarkdale, although – uh, when you go, you would think you were in Cottonwood because it's just on the edge of Clarkdale. 
Uh, it's a beautiful place, and I'd urge anybody to make a trip there. It's only four minutes from our winery. Uh, there you in go. The, well, in the Cottonwood Air Park. And that Cottonwood <laughs> downtown, I've got a, pic, a printed picture of the Arizona <clears throat> Wine Trail in the Verde Valley. They've, there's another one for Sonoid, and there's another one for Wilcox. But right. the in Cottonwood, Clarkdale, you know, that you've got four uh, kind of spread out along 89A, but then downtown. Cotton ta- uh, downtown Cottonwood, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, eight and, and walking distance for in, within two blocks of each other. Yeah, there are eight tasting rooms in uh, Old Town, and also really nice restaurants. So I mean, it's a nice, uh, nice place to go and walk around. And if you get hungry, you've got great places to eat. So it's a trip to go up there and buy some wine from the Southwest Wine Center, and then hang right. out and tour the different tasting right. rooms. So, what you know, we've been talking about Farm Bureau and. Our partnership with Southwest Wine Center with the Centennial Red. And by the way, for the listeners in the third segment, we're going to interview Brian, owner of Old Ellsworth Brewing Company in Queen Creek, because they created a, a beer for us for us, the Centennial. But I won't give away all the details. But why are you so involved in Farm Bureau? Well, uh, I grew up in Indiana. And uh, even though my family wasn't in agriculture, I had a lot of friends who were. And uh, uh, Farm Bureau is uh, an amazing organization. Uh, I, I don't mean to to uh, blaspheme, but it's it's almost like God in the farming uh, the community. <laughs> Certainly in some of those Midwest states. Right. And uh, I think uh, Arizona has maybe 25,000 members, and, and Indiana is somewhere closer to 400,000. Um, but I, I, all my life I've had a very high regard for the Farm Bureau. And when... Uh, uh, when I officially became a farmer, uh, I couldn't wait to uh, connect with the Farm Bureau here, and I found it to be one of the most professional organizations I've ever uh, been in touch with. Um, the ability to get uh, opinions and information from the grassroots level all the way up to the top and to legislation is just mind-boggling how efficient it is. And the, uh, all the people who work for the Farm Bureau in Arizona are extremely professional and hardworking. And I'm so happy to be involved with it. We love what we do. So back to the wine. And I've been sipping on one of these varietals that you brought us. So what? what's the other? Oh, I hear music. That means we got a break. But we've still got more wine to talk about and then also beer and all sorts of things about Arizona agriculture. Just go easy on the break, okay? We've got Julie Murphy, spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau, <laughs> along with Emil exactly. Mulan of Col Mesa. <laughs> did, 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 I didn't quite get that right. Uh, Emil. You'll, you'll get it right. Ah. <laughs> this is Tyler Howland of Urban Shed Concepts, the Better Shed Company. Happy New Year from Rosie on the House. The Outdoor Living Hour continues on this New Year's Eve morning with Arizona-grown food and drink, which it's pretty much on the menu for New Year's Eve for your parties. And that can include medjool dates, also known as the fruit of kings. They've been around for centuries. And Juan Guzman of Date Pack talks about this commodity that's packaged under the name Natural Delights. You can find it in your local grocery store. And it's grown right here in Arizona. Dates are actually known to be one of the oldest fruits uh, in humankind history, far as 5,000 years ago. But uh, in Arizona, the story 
started for us right around the 1930s uh, when uh, the government of Morocco reached out to the USDA and asked for some help in dealing with a disease that was ravaging uh, palm trees in Morocco. And there were a couple of labs, uh, USDA labs, one located in uh, Mecca, California, and one located in Bard, California. And they decided to bring a couple of specimens that were not affected by the disease to the valley. And out of those that were brought in, uh, some offshoots were planted right here in Yuma. And out of those that were planted, six actually stand to this day today, over 70 feet tall. Seriously. So this all started based on an experiment and trying to avoid a, a disease. And it and it also speaks about the reach of our our farmers and for that matter for the USDA back at the time. So that's how the industry started here in in, in the desert southwest. And and that lends to what today is about a thirty million pounds of medjool dates that are harvested every year. What makes Arizona or that this area in Yuma so good with growing dates? I mean, well, we have a secret formula <laughs> that cannot be replicated anywhere in the world, and it's called the 100 days of 100 degrees. Okay. <laughs> so as many of our listeners know, uh, it gets rather hot in the desert southwest. And in order for the fruit to produce the tree, the, 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 the fruit itself, uh, they need to go through this stress and uh, dates are unlike other perennials or other fruits the the tree itself uses the dates as a way to store water and nutrients so they go through this level of stress and heat and they put all these nutrients on the fruit itself and then they use those nutrients back that's why medjool dates are so good for you and so full of nutrients uh and and only in certain parts of the world you'll get these microclimates, which we know in Vegas, in Florida, you'll hear like, oh, yeah, it hit 100 degrees, but not in the middle of the night. It hits you. It's 100 degrees, you know. Yeah. Now, Juan, when you're harvesting these dates off the tree, if that's their stored nutrients, do you leave a certain amount of dates on it or do you have other supplemental fertilizers you're putting back into it? Obviously, they're... 70 feet tall and still surviving 90 years later. Uh, so, you know, are they just that hardy enough you can take that stored fruit from them and they'll just generate one for the next year? They will. And uh, how, and, and, but we also do uh, nutrients. Uh, we have a very nutrient dense program for all of our farms um, because ultimately you do want the tree itself to be healthy. Uh, it produces this wonderful fruit year after year, so we want to make sure that that those trees are healthy and strong. Uh, so we we're not trying to overcompensate or for the lack of the fruit itself, because as soon as you start putting water uh, into the farms themselves again, uh, the tree does wonderfully. We have very rich soil here as well, because we're, we're right by the color, by what used to be the Colorado River bed. So this this big region used to be flooded, and uh, and and that allows for some very rich soil, in which our our trees uh, stand today. So how many acres in the dates? And then talk a little bit more about just exactly what date pack does. We have several thousand acres. Uh, we our, our growers farm around 7,000 acres today of all of medjool dates. There's over 100 different varieties of dates. Medjool dates are known to be the best of all them all. 
they're known to be the fruit of kings because uh like i mentioned earlier they were mentioned and it it used to be considered a delicacy uh, many many hundreds of years ago and what makes us so unique well we are the desert southwest is our home and uh, not a lot of things grow here during the summer it takes a lot of work and it's a labor of love for us it's a very labor intensive process uh harvesting uh medjool dates and day pack specifically we focus on what happens after we harvest so what do we do with those 30 million pounds well we start by by making sure that we identify the fruit that the fruit is ripened and once we pick the fully ripened fruit we sort it and we grade it based on quality standards our quality standards are known to be the best in the industry um under the natural delights brand we pack the product that reaches retailers all around the world we have distribution in 32 different countries around the world uh and you can find us locally in all across the state in uh every major retailer uh, our distribution extends to several countries so we'll pack in a 1 pound plastic tub that has uh a label going to Canada or going to Norway or going to Australia oh my goodness yeah and so you sent us some samples for today and like you said under your brand the natural de- delights so you're doing something special for the holidays what exactly is that We are something we're very excited because I love it. Uh it's these are the natural delights dark chocolate covered medjool dates with sea salt. So it's the perfect combination of sweet and savory packed on this beautiful package, a gift package that's going to be reaching some of our major club store retailers and uh some retailers across the United States and it's really really good. Julie, you you're going to have to attest for that. I'm talking with my mouth full but my mother is not here so Oh my gosh. Uh, you you'd mentioned and hinted to recipes and I wanted to make sure we hit that before we uh wrap up this segment because we we've got a list here of of like some holiday cooking ideas for dates. Well, honestly, my I I I've been part of the date industry for now 19 years, coming up on 19 years and 4 months. And and I was surprised by how dates uh complement many dishes. They can go on a sweet and savory spectrum really fast. So for me, uh usually my favorite date recipes are actually more on the savory side than on the sweet side because dates are so sweet. So for example, probably a couple of times a week uh my wife prepares this great salad with just some chopped dates and a vinaigrette and, and a and a vinaigrette dressing. So very you know you'll have some dates, some feta cheese and some uh, grilled chicken. It's just really it, it complements um uh a uh, uh, a salad very well with the vinegar. That's my favorite, but I also uh a few A year and a half ago, I tried a recipe that blew my mind. Somebody did a reduction with medjool dates and coffee beans and they put it on top of a steak. Mm. And the and the coffee bean flavor with the dates gave the steak this really decadent taste that tasted nothing like dates or coffee. So we need to get the recipe for that. It one. was just it blew my mind. I was like, "Oh, wait, so you're going to give me a steak that tastes like coffee and dates?" Like, "No, I like my meats. It's like to taste like meat." 
but wow, it blew my mind away. I was just like, I couldn't believe it. So if we can get our hands on that and how to do that, we'll post it on Fill Your Plate. And I know that we'll post it on the Rosie, on the house.com website. But I'll, I'll, I'll gladly share some recipes. One of my other favorite recipes is uh, with spicy. Like every time you have somebody over, the Philadelphia cream cheese with jalapeno. Oh, I love just, that one. Right? So you just yeah. open up a date. You you fill it with that spicy cream cheese. Uh and it's fantastic. And then if you want to be bold, uh, wrap some bacon around it and because everything goes great with bacon <laughs> and put it in the oven for 15 minutes. Fantastic. Your guests are going to love it. And it's a, a 20 minute recipe. People are going to think like, wow, you're a culinary master uh, and it's going to taste great. I got one because I make it every Christmas. My grandmother's sister used to make date loaf and it was butter, sugar, dates, pecans and if i'm not mistaken you would take that you would roll it in a wet hot towel and let it sit on the counter it would harden but you would they're very easy to cut and you can serve on a plate it is delicious that sounds delicious it does sound good now we had mentioned the date pack website and you'd also mention natural delights if you go to date pack's website and click on natural delights it brings you to a whole new website and on the recipes tab in there, this this is scrolling on. There's got to be several hundred here. But you've got one that would have been good for Halloween where you've got these dates that are dressed up to look like spiders. Um, lots of drink op- applications I'm looking through. Um, that spider recipe actually won an award at uh, the Produce Marketing Association uh, event a couple of years ago because of how easy it was to make. And it, you're right. They look like spiders with pretzel, pretzel legs. <laughs> Oh, how fun. I'm hungry. And I just had breakfast not too long ago. And you just had the dates that and only now, Julie was the one that was able to taste that one. Yeah. It's really good. Really good. And then, is, that, how long have you been doing the chocolate covered medjool dates? This is our first year. We found a partner out of California uh, that, that they are, um, they specialize on handling chocolate. And uh, we worked with them for about four and a half months on trying to develop the recipe uh, and, and, and pretty much run dates through their, own, their processes. And, and that's where we are today. Awesome. It looks like you were going to say something, Romy. Just that there's a store locator on that website as well, on the naturaldelights.com. You can find a local grocery store, and uh, we have also have those other websites we'll post where you can order directly from one of the growers that supplies to date pack. It sounds like you've got these independent growers. They send their dates to you. You guys package, ship, and, and distribute. Yes. Is that a, that's that a, is correct. That that is correct. Imperial Date Gardens, it's a farm. That's the farm and we are the packing house for them. And um just remember these are all local dates. So uh look for that uh certainly look for that uh natural delight brand and then if you go directly to the grower, that's another way to get that local product. Juan Guzman of Date Pack. You, again, it's datepac.com. Is it M A D or M E D? It's M-E-D-J-O-O-L. All right. The Medjool Dates out of Yuma, Arizona. Ooh, time has flown by this year. It's the last day of 2022, and you're listening to Rosie on the House on this New Year's Eve morning. 
and the outdoor living hour. And we thought we'd make a focus on farm-fresh, Arizona-grown food and drink. It goes along with New Year's Eve. And by the way, if you're stumped on what to make tonight for your family or friends, go to fillyourplate.org. They have a bunch of recipes for whatever you might have in mind. So that's fillyourplate.org. It's right there on that Internet machine that Rosie likes to talk about. Now, maybe you're serving a dish that involves pasta, in particular, desert durum wheat, which is what it's made of. It's known worldwide, and it's grown right here in State 48. Eric Wilkie, who's the president of Arizona Grain, located in Cass Grand, Arizona. So tell us exactly what Arizona Grain does. We kind of challenge people from time to time. It's like, tell me a part of your day, and I'll tell you where Arizona Grain is part of your day. And we can play that game later um, if you'd like, because Arizona Grain does a lot of things. So in a simple form, we are grain handlers, seed handlers, merchants. And what that means is um, for a Arizona farmer, we may sell him his planting seed for cereal grains, for forage grains, buy back his production, and then either... Um, change its form through processing or through uh, through handling logistics and make it available to other participants in the market. Um, so we're in the seed business, we're in the feed business, we're in the grain business, um, we're in the bird seed business. Uh, we make uh, products for ranchers. So we have uh, kind of, we're kind of really um, ingrained in, to use, ingrained, a pun, yeah. to, to use a pun, in agriculture <laughs> industry. Yeah, and that's kind of the, maybe what we'll get into a little bit today with with Durham wheat, which is a which is a really interesting story, so Desert Durham is uh, got a history. Uh, first of all, of being a very low quality kind of feed product that just didn't really realize its best potential. It was a it was a rotation crop for farmers who were in the cotton business, alfalfa business, and then some plant breeders came in and said, "How do we improve this? Because we have a really good environment." So there there you have you know farming opportunities. You bring in plant breeding and genetics. You have a perfect environment here in Arizona. We have a greenhouse. You know, we don't have inclement weather during our harvest periods, which makes for really good durum wheat, which is what the pasta industry wants. Then you have the handlers. Then you have the universities in research. Then you um, have the marketing side of it. The chain now extends from the, the research and plant breeding through the farmer, through the handler, all the way to some of the best pasta made in the world. And that's a really well-kept secret. We like more people to know about. Um, we travel to Italy every year as an example. And it's kind of fun when you're in a restaurant and they ask, maybe you get a conversation going and they ask you what you do and you say, well, I sell durum wheat. What do you, you know, and, and they usually know that durum wheat makes pasta. And then you quiz them and say, where does the best wheat come for the best Italian pastas? And they never get it right. But the answer is Arizona. Arizona grows, and you made reference to it, world-renowned wheat that literally is registered as desert durum. And be, and that's because of its consistent quality. Our desert durum keeps global markets coming back for more. And w we think of Italy all the time. So this is a fun part. And I'm going to have you drill down a little bit more on this, uh, Eric. But the phrase desert durum has been trademarked with the U.S. Patent Office, office under the ownership of the Arizona Grain Research and Promotion Council, which you were chair for a couple of years, and then also the California Wheat Commission, because in California and Arizona, this is where we're literally producing this high-quality desert durum. Another thing I like to highlight when I talk about the desert durum 
uh, with my network is, as a result, only desert durum grown in Arizona and California qualifies for that trademark. Uh, this special wheat is produced under irrigation in the desert valleys and lowlands of Arizona and California. And you were kind of talking to us about that before the show. It's like uh, Romy asked, you know, where are we growing all this wonderful quality desert durum? Yeah, it's uh, it's really from corner to corner in the state, but it's generally in the arc of the uh, below the Mogollon Rim, of course, which is, you know, if I can describe it, it would be starting in Wilcox and going through the Tucson area, through the Santa Cruz Valley, up through um, uh, the Salt River area. So uh, Maricopa County, good example, and then grown out towards Gila Bend down through the Welton Mohawk Valley and into the Colorado River Basin. So those are the lowlands, irrigated farm ground, uh, where we have the best weather and the most productivity for growing uh, growing many crops, uh, you know, vegetables and other things. But Durham is part of that mix. It's high protein. Yeah. And color is an issue, especially with our Italian buyers. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So some of the some of the unique things, again, when I talked about there isn't the inclement weather during um, the harvest period. So one thing about Durham wheat is, is that it doesn't do well if it gets rained on because it, it what we there's a term called bleaching. OK, and, and it basically bleeds out the nice amber yellow color that we expect when we buy pasta. If you bought a pasta and it looked white and chalky in the package, it wouldn't look very appealing. So it's that that amber color that we're looking for. When you grow Durham wheat in northern climates, and it's grown in North, North Dakota, Montana, Canada, uh, those would be major production areas. But it can rain during any month of the year, um, and particularly during the maturation period of August and September in those areas, and they can lose all that color. We don't have that. But through traditional plant breeding, we have increased the yellow pigments, again, by, nat- by selecting the right plants that express that more darker yellow color. And that is a very prized thing because, again, it makes for that very appealing pasta that's on your plate. So we've done that. The other thing is, is that we've added um, strength and elasticity to the, to the uh, semolina. And semolina is basically durum wheat that's been ground into a flour. And um, when you make your pasta with desert durum, it's much more al dente. You've all heard that term, right? Yes. Al dente, this is good. It's firm to the bite. That's really what al dente means. Keeps the wonderful pasta shapes that we see. Right. And, and you know, if you really are, if you really are into pasta, and I, and I think I am just because of doing this for so long, that al dente is important. But also that al dente helps um, and the shape. I mean, why is there so many shapes in pasta? Because every shape um, has a different texture on your tongue and bite. It holds the sauce differently. So if you have a, if you have a durum wheat that's very strong, and we say, again, al dente, then it holds the sauce better. It holds up on your plate. It looks more appealing. And those are all characteristics that, you know, um, a high-quality pasta will exhibit. So some of our fine pasta chefs are nodding their heads. I know I can envision it even though we're on the radio. And, Eric, it sounds like you ha- kind of have a connoisseur You've developed a connoisseur taste on all of this. You've tried a lot of Italian pasta grown with desert durum Arizona wheat. I have. Um, but, you know, it's you can also um, find desert durum as a part of many domestic brands as well. 